0: As we go to God's word, let's ask him to bless it to us. Let's pray together. Hear us, O Lord, as we call to you. Be gracious to us and answer us. For you have said, seek my face. And our hearts say to you now, your face, Lord, do we seek. Please do not hide your face from us, but reveal it to us in the face of Christ Jesus, our Lord. And teach us your way, O Lord, and lead us now on a level path. For we ask all of this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Please be seated. And please turn with me in God's word to the book of 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. We're also going to be considering Lord's Day 41 on the seventh commandment. So 1 Corinthians chapter 6, we're going to begin our reading at verse 12 and read through chapter 7, verse 9. So 1 Corinthians chapter 6, beginning our reading at verse 12. And let's pay careful attention for this is God's own word. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord, and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, Is it good for man not to have sexual relations with a woman? But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again, so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now as a concession, not a command, I say this, I wish that all were as, all were as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am, But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Thus far the reading of God's word. May he bless it to us. Um, Obviously, God's word has a lot to say about this topic, and it's a needful topic for us to address in our day. Um, Kevin DeYoung commenting on uh, this reality for uh, 21st century America and the importance of this commandment, Um, helps us to understand why it's good that we take time to think about difficult things, such as the Seventh Commandment and what it implies for us. Uh, Kevin DeYoung writing said, Is there any commandment more ridiculed in our culture than the Seventh Commandment? Adultery is a joke. Homosexuality is a right. Sex before marriage is the norm. No-fault divorce and remarriage is assumed. This is the world we live in. Never before in this country has so much sexual deviance been made to look so normal and God's standards made to look so obscene. Our lives are awash in sexuality. It's on the television, in the movies, in our music, on the side of buses, and in our books. We can hardly avoid it during halftime shows and in glossy close-ups at supermarket checkouts. Sex is all around us in the mall, dripping off every beer commercial and two stories high on our billboards. And, of course, it is on the Internet. Pornography and sex-related sites make up 60% of daily web traffic. Of Internet users in the United States, 40% visit porn sites at least once a month. And that number increases to 70% when the audience is 18 to 34-year-old males. Among children ages 8 to 16 with Internet access, 90% have seen pornography online. And the average age of exposure is 11 The Seventh Commandment is not just broken in this country, it's being smashed to pieces. None of us is immune from the dangers of sexual immorality. So how can we, with our sex-saturated hearts, obey the Seventh Commandment? That's a pretty damning indictment of our culture, isn't it, Um, and where we stand. And of course, if we're never saying anything about this topic because it's a difficult topic to talk about, not maybe the thing we are excited to go out and hear on a Sunday night, um, it's the kind of thing that's sensitive and needs to be dealt with sensitively. But if we never talk about it as a church and never say about it what God has to say about it, then the only people who will be talking about it is the world. Um, we already know what the world has to say, and we already know that that needs to be corrected. We need to continue to consider the seventh commandment, to consider what it has to say to us. Um, and before we get too despairing about the current state of our own culture now, it's worth remembering that every people and every generation have been uh, beset by all kinds of de- deviance in this way. Um, if you read Leviticus 18, it's filled with perversions that God's people faced in the Old Testament. Um, so I don't know that necessarily it means that much has changed in the world. I think it means that in our day and age, the world is closer. Uh, we tend to pipe in the world into our homes through... The cable and the satellite and the Wi-Fi and the phones, it's not so much that the danger is different, it's just closer. Um, And if that's the case, then God's people probably need to be even more on their guard to keep the seventh commandment and to keep themselves from evil. Um, And given the nature of the problem, the extent of the problem, how do we think through these things? How do we deal with these things in a way that honors the Lord? Well, I think the Catechism very much helps us to think about what is, what is it to honor the Lord by the keeping of the seventh commandment? What does it forbid? What does it require? Um, and I think it, help, it helps us to, first of all, have the proper understanding and attitude towards impurity. God's people have to have the proper atti- attitude towards impurity. Uh, we also need to have the proper pursuit of purity. Just as we need to think about impurity as God does, we have to seek to be pure Um, And this, I think, is helped when we have a proper view of our bodies and souls. Um, And that's one of the the wonderful teachings, I think, of the seventh commandment in God's word. A proper understanding of who we are, of who God has made us to be, will help us understand better how we are to keep this commandment. So we want to have a proper attitude towards impurity um, uh, and to pursue purity in our lives and also to have a proper view of our bodies and souls. Um, We have to have the proper attitude towards impurity, Um, and that's difficult in our culture because we always are getting accused of being either prudes or Puritans in the way that we look at the world. Um, I remember when Hugh Hefner died, they ran um, an obituary on him that I liked because it was very critical of him, Um, but they said he's often sort of credited as being the vanquisher of Puritanism in the country, as if that's some great accomplishment. Um, and I liked the, the obituary, the, the op-ed that was in the New York Times by uh, Russ That sort of saying, he's not to be remembered well. Um, and if he is the vanquisher of Puritanism, we're the poorer for it. Um, but that's often how, how this kind of idea about sexual liberation in this country is looked at, that this somehow wiping out something bad, a kind of prudishness about um, life and attitudes that are so, sort of old-worldly. And that people just need to sort of get with the times um, and understand what everybody understands nowadays. And of course, God's word comes to us always and says, I don't really care about the times. I don't care about the culture you live in. You're not the people of this world. You're not the people of this culture. You're my people. And you're to think of things the way I think of things. Uh, we can see that in what God commanded his people in Leviticus 18 as they were going into Canaan. In Leviticus 18:1 through 5, the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, I am the Lord your God. You shall not do as they do in the land of Egypt where you lived, and you shall not do as they do in the land of Canaan to which I'm bringing you. You shall not walk in their statutes. You shall follow my rules and keep my statutes, and walk in them. I am the Lord your God. You shall therefore keep my statutes and my rules. If a person does them, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. Um, That that was a dangerous place that people of Israel were, right, between Egypt and Canaan. Um, The place where they lived with its perversions and the place they were going with its perversions. Um, And some things don't change. We are in many ways still a people in the wilderness between Egypt and Canaan, either threatened to take on old attitudes or new attitudes, but worldly attitudes. And it's interesting that God says, you're not to live by their rules. I'm your God. You're to live by my rules. Um, That's the first thing we have to come to when we talk about this topic. We have to live the way God has commanded us to live. And really what the world thinks of that is of no particular moment. It doesn't really factor Um, because God is the one who rules over us. It's God's statutes that matter. It's God's rules that we need to apply. And that helps us a lot because then we don't have to chase the attitudes and ideas of the world ever changing as they are. Um, We don't have to be either Victorian or free love because we know that neither of those captures what God wants in his word. Uh, We can look to his word and know that it has everything we need to know to teach us. And it it begins by teaching us that we have to be absolutely set against any kind of immorality and impurity. Uh, That God hates these things. That's very clear from God's word that he hates these things and doesn't want his people to be a part of them. Um, Sexual, he says in Ephesians 5, 3 through 5, sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. Let there be no filthiness or foolish talk or crude joking which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who's covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of God. Is there any doubt about what God thinks about these things? Um, how seriously he takes them? How high his demand is? Right? That's where we, we get that, that other translation says there should not even be a hint of this among us. Um, God thinks about these things seriously. He hates it. That's clear from his word. And we might ask the question, why does he hate it so much? Why is this such a serious sin to him? Um, why, why among the things is he so strident against this kind of sin? Um, well, because he created sexual morality in the context of marriage to be a good thing, a blessing to his people, and a picture of the kind of love that Christ has for his church. It's all part and parcel of the picture of marriage that God built into this world. It's all part and parcel to that covenant relationship that is unique and exclusive and to be enjoyed between those covenant partners and only those covenant partners in an intimate way. Um, and we're talking about the marriage picture that God has given to us. That's, it's part of it. It's all part of it. It's not the most important part of it. It's not an unimportant part of it. It's part of it. But it's part of a broader picture that God wants to show by marriage. That two become one, that they relate together, and that that in a mysterious way is a picture of Christ and his church. That's what he says in Ephesians 5, 31 and 32. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. One of the things that our culture gets so wrong is they they think that this that when it comes down to sexuality it's all just physical and biological. That after all we're just grown-up germs and so we're only physical and biological anyway. And that's all that it comes down to. But scripture importantly says it's not just physical and biological, it's also theological and spiritual. That there's there's a holistic whole in marriage, making a picture of intimate love between a husband and a wife, between two covenant partners in a way that no one else enjoys it, that's exclusive to them. That that joy can only be found between the two of them in that covenantal context. And one of the problems we have in our sexualized culture is it blows those things out of proportion, but they need to be understood in the right proportion. It's part of the love that God has made in a marriage. It's not the only thing that marriage involves. It's part of a whole. But the whole picture together shows that kind of jealous, unique oneness that is meant to be had between two covenant partners exclusively. And that's teaching us something about how Christ loves his church. We, we talk about, in Scripture, the jealous love of God. And that can be hard for us because we always think of jealousy as Shakespeare's green-eyed monster, as the thing that is terrible. We, we think of jealous people as oppressive and overbearing. But when, when God talks about his love being jealous, he says, there's a love with which I've loved you and that is exclusive to me and I won't tolerate that kind of love for anyone else. I love you as my people and no one else. And I expect you as my people to love me as your God and to love no one else. Um, That's not a bad kind of jealous love. That's a wonderful kind of jealous love. It's a holy jealousy where God says, I will love you and no one else. And I will not let your love run after other things that will not love you as I love you. That's the kind of love that we're talking about in marriage. That's the kind of picture that God gives to us in the church. It may be a sad state of affairs in a marriage if a spouse didn't care if the other spouse was out sleeping with a lot of other people. It would say something about the care and concern they had for one another. Or more properly, the lack of concern or care that they had for one another. Um, And and God has given us this marriage as a holistic whole with all that it involves, as a picture of that unique love between Christ and His bride. It's that jealous love for his bride that drove him to the cross. It's that jealous love for his bride that said, "I will not let her chase after another husband who will not love her. I will not let her play the harlot," as our old versions say, to kind of not offend us. Right? I won't let her play the harlot. It was the jealous love of the Lord that drove him to do that for his bride, Um, because he loved her and laid down his life for her, even when she was trafficking herself to all indiscriminately. Um, And if you're saying, Pastor, isn't that kind of a grim image to use on a Sunday night? Did we really need to hear that kind of language? Well, it's the language of Scripture. Ezekiel 16 is worse, um, and Hosea is worse. So I spared you that. Um, But if you think I'm overstating it, go read Ezekiel 16, and then you'll thank me for my discretion. Um, That's who we were, trafficking ourselves, and the Lord didn't allow it. The Lord made us whole because he loved us with an exclusive love and wouldn't let us go. That's what drove him to the cross for his people, that kind of holistic love for us. Um, His ferocious jealousy for his bride is what caused him to die for us. And we can think of Isaiah 54, 6 through 8, For the Lord has called you like a wife deserted and grieved in spirit, like a wife of youth when she is cast off, says your God. For a brief moment I deserted you, but with great compassion I will gather you. In overflowing anger for a moment I hid my face from you, but with everlasting love I will have compassion on you says the Lord, your Redeemer. God created us body and soul um, and marriage to be both a physical and a spiritual union between husband and wife. Um, All to create for us a picture of the intimacy with which Christ loves his church. Um, All of that picture together. And so to take any part of that picture out of the covenant context, to rip it out from where it belongs in the picture, and to take it and put it someplace else apart from that covenant context um, is to do great damage to what God has given to us, to ruin the picture. Um, and that, that's, what, that's why God hates it so much. He created it as a beautiful picture and something to be properly enjoyed in a covenant context. And to take it and make it something else is to make it something impure and dirty. At its essence, it's, covenant, it's covenant-breaking. That's why God hates it, because he's the covenant-keeping God. Um, and that's why he feels so strongly about impurity. It, it, it smears mud across the lens of the camera that, shows, that makes it impossible to show the picture of what he wants us to see in marriage, and so he doesn't want it, and he hates it, and so we must hate it. That has to be our position Sort of zero tolerance position for this kind of sin, and that's what we read in the first question of Lord's Day forty-one: that God condemns all unchastity, and that we should therefore detest it wholeheartedly. At the end of the day, we should hate it because He hates it. Um, that should be our attitude towards impurity, and then we should always then do the opposite. The, the Lord's law is always the same. Uh, there's a repeated refrain in all of these catechism sermons on the commandments. It's, don't do what God forbids and do what God wants us to do. It's always put off the evil and put on what is good. And so if God doesn't want us to be impure, what does he want us to be? Pure. We're to have the proper pursuit of purity. And that's what question 108 goes on to say. To live decent and chaste lives within or outside of the holy state of marriage. Um, Ursinus was probably single when he wrote this catechism. Uh, so he has in mind single people as well as married people. Um, I made the mistake once of saying that Ursinus didn't get married till he was 40 and he was dead eight years later. That's how I put it in a sermon once and someone pointed out to me that's, you're kind of downplaying marriage pastor i don't think his marriage killed him and that's probably right um so in no way does it put it down but what it is helpful to do is say he was a single pastor talking to single people he realized this is important not just for married people to keep in mind but also for single people that we're all included in this command that we all need to keep this command regardless of what state we find ourselves in um and unless we misunderstand what the apostle is saying in 1 Corinthians, you know, he doesn't say to single people, um, it's good for them to remain single, but if they cannot exercise self-control. He's not saying marriage is good for people who can't exercise self-control. His message is really here to single people in the congregation who were not exercising self-control. And he's saying to them, if you're not going to exercise self-control in this matter, then you have to get a wife. And enjoy this in the context for which I've intended it. But your choices are to live a chaste single life or to be married. There's no third option. There's no third option in there. You have to be married or you can be single and chaste, but you can't have a third way. Um, That's what he's clearly communicating to God's people there. Um, Because it's it's clear that there were people in Corinth who were trying to live in a third way. Um, and so they were called to live decent and chaste lives within or without the holy state of marriage. That's the proper attitude we're to have towards purity. And we realize that this is immediately that this is a calling for more than just outward conformity to the law. Um, that God is not just condemning outward actions, but actions of the heart as well. Um, we, we tell ourselves over and over again, mere outward conformity to the law can never please God who also sees the heart. Um, that it gets, it gets past just outward actions and down into the heart. That's clearly taught by our Lord when he talked about adultery in Matthew chapter 5. Right, you have heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. That's why question 109 is, is echoing scripture and saying God is not just concerned with outward sins. Um, and it goes on to point out in question 109, we are temples of the Holy Spirit, body and soul, and God wants both to be kept clean and holy. That's why God forbids all unchaste actions, looks, talk, thoughts, or desires, and whatever may incite someone to them. Well, that's easy to do in a sex-obsessed culture, right? Um, That's really easy to do. No, of course, it's really hard to do. It's a really difficult calling. Uh, Dr. Clowney, in his book, put it this way For even a Christian who has lived a pure life in the sense just mentioned cannot stand before Christ's demands for purity. What husband has not looked on another woman and lusted? What wife has not thought, Why did God give me this husband? Would I not have been happier with another? What spouse, male or female, has not dreamed of using his or her body to impress or manipulate? What single has not been tempted to idolize a longed for marriage partner rather than trusting God for the sufficiency of his love? And if our fidelity in marriage and sexuality is weak, what hope do we have of standing pure in our fidelity to our Savior? We hear what he says and we despair. Who is capable of such purity? Um, That's why we not only need to have a proper understanding of what God is calling us to, but that we have a proper understanding of body and soul um, as God has made them and remade them in the image of Christ. That's why it's so important to listen to how the apostle calls us to obey this law in 1 Corinthians 6. Look at how he reasons for us. When he says in verse 18, flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but a sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Why do we need to have a proper understanding of who we are now, body and soul, in Christ? The call to purity is not to take something impure and make it pure. We are not trying to make ourselves pure in our own strength. Right? Look again how Paul reasons. You are a temple of the Holy Spirit who is within you. You want to know how we can hope to keep this command? There's the hope right there. The Holy Spirit is abiding in the temple. He has tabernacled with us. There is strength and power that we don't have. There is the the power for purity that we need. The Holy Spirit is within you. You have him from God, Paul says. Um, You were bought with a price, right? So you have already been purchased and the price is clear, right? Right? If the price is not clear, the price God paid for you is not gold or silver, but the precious blood of his son. You belong to him because he's purchased you. Um, These are all the incentives to holiness that we are given. Right? Don't be it's not saying to us, be pure to improve yourself, or so that you can be a temple of the Holy Spirit. Don't it's not saying sweep yourself out so that the Spirit can come and dwell with you. If we're waiting for that to happen, that will never happen. We would never be able to make ourselves clean enough for the Holy Spirit to come and tabernacle with us. And that's the great news of the gospel and the great news of sanctification. God knows that that's impossible for us. Just as it is impossible for us to wake up and put our faith and trust in Christ when we're dead, it's impossible to clean ourselves up when we're stained with corruption and sin. And the good news of the gospel is just as God gives you the gift of faith so that you can see Christ and live, the Holy Spirit also comes to clean up what was impure and make it pure. And so the good news is we are temples of the Holy Spirit. We have been given Him by God. We have been bought with a price. We are not our own. And so glorify God in your body. Right? We're to rest on all of those things that are true now as the ground for what we are called to do. It's so great that Paul doesn't say, so, clean yourself up. Right, That's not the goal of what Paul calls us to do. What does Paul call us to do? What is the command? Glorify God. You see how this isn't just a self-improvement project for the sinner. It's a calling to glorify the God who has purchased us at such a great price. To remember that we're not, we're, we're not our own. We don't belong to ourselves. We belong to him. That our body is a temple of the Holy Spirit and needs to be treated that way. That's the reality of who we are. That's where the power comes from to glorify God in our bodies. Um, The work of Christ assures us that our sexual sins have lost the power to condemn us or enslave us. They've lost the power because Christ has purchased us and his blood is sufficient to make us clean. Um, You know, in a a sex-saturated culture, there are going to be people who have stumbled and fallen in many ways. Uh, and, And the good news is Christ died for those sins too. And that his spirit there is to help us in our need with those sins too. That there's no sin that Christ has not paid for by his blood, and no corruption that the spirit cannot wipe out by his power. And if you say, My sin is great, I'll say to you, The spirit is greater. Greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. Um, the spirit has power, and it doesn't promise that it'll be an easy time for us as we try to glorify God with our bodies in the midst of this kind of world. It's a battle. Sanctification is a battle. It requires a killer instinct. Um, you have to step on its neck and shoot it in the head. And if that sounds too grim, that's what the picture of the Bible gives us. You've got to kill it. Um, and if we want to be effective fighters with, like, with any other sin, we have to know where this sin strikes. You have to know your enemy. You have to know how he works. You have to know how he works on you. Um. I like John Owen in The Mortification of Sin saying, he didn't say it exactly this way, I'm going to paraphrase it, we don't have the time to say it the way he said it. Um, But you know, he said, you can't just wrestle with sin when you're in the midst of the struggle. You have to figure out how your enemy works. You have to think about it when you're not in the midst of the struggle and think, what what goes on when I get stuck in a sin? How does it come for me? Um, And how then can I defend against it? It requires skill, it requires planning, and especially in this culture, if it's surrounding us all the time, we have to be vigilant all the time. Um, This sin in particular is all over the place, Um, and so we need to be thinking about, how do I defend myself against this? How do I succumb to these kinds of temptations, and how do I defend against them? Um, We're not promised an easy time of it, and we're called to extreme action. Right? The, the very next verse after Jesus said, if you look at a woman, you've committed lust in your heart. He goes on to say in Matthew 5.29, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body goes into hell. And then how do we usually preach this? Well, Jesus says, tear your eye out, but he doesn't really mean tear your eye out. Um, We immediately try to minimize the effect of this. We shouldn't minimize the effect of it. He's being serious. Now, I'm not saying you should all go right out and tear eyes out. I don't want to see a lot of pirate patches next week, right? But what is he saying? Extreme action is required. There are people who say, well, you just can't get away from it and I really can't discipline myself, but I keep my computer running and I can't discipline myself not to use my computer and what am I supposed to do, just not have a computer? Yes. If you can't discipline yourself in the use of equipment, don't use it or get some accountability software for someone to help you. Extreme difficult action is required for these sins. Um, If we can't keep them, we need help. We need accountability. We need to be... Vigilant about these things. Uh, And in all of these things, we need to remember always where the true problem really lies. Um, We we, we tend to say often, right, that isn't the culture out there so wicked? I just don't know how we're going to face the world. Um, And what does Jesus always say? You want to know where it's really wicked? Look inside your heart. You want to know where this wickedness really resides? It's in the heart. Everything that's in the world was in someone's heart first. It, it spilled out of that. And, and the sewer went down the street from the heart. That's where all of this stuff came from. From the hearts of sinners. And when we sin against this commandment, we often say, well, those other things outside. How are we supposed to live in a culture like this? But it comes from your heart. Um, and that's where we need, the, we need the work and we need the help and praise God that he's doing that. Um, You see how we have to have a proper understanding of our bodies and souls, a proper understanding of where the sin really lies if we're going to attack it well, um, if we're going to do these things. We have to be praying for the grace and the help of the Holy Spirit to keep His law. We have to not neglect God's Word and what it continues to tell us about sin. And we can't ever forget with this sin or any other that it was costly to be forgiven of it. You know, we can have a tendency to say, you're not your own, you were bought with a price, and, and we know about the cross, and we know the, the cost that was paid, but it's so easy for us to pass over that price, and not to think what it cost, what our sin cost in terms of the price that our Lord had to pay. And it's reflecting on that cost that could help God's people as they pursue holiness to say, I don't want my Lord to have to have died for that. I know the price that he has to pay for all my sins, and I know that he's paid it, but I don't want to sin. I don't want to, in a sense, heap on him what he had to pay for. I don't think there's any greater incentive to holiness than to think about what the cost was for us to be made clean and not to want to engage in those things anymore. Um, I always remember Hal Jones saying that uh, to us in class. Is there any greater spur to holiness than to call to mind what it cost the sinless Savior to bear away our sin? What it cost to redeem us. That was not a small price to pay. And Why did he do it? Because he loved us and wanted us to be not just free from guilt, but free from pollution. Not just just enslaved to the guilt of sin and and condemned for the guilt of sin, but mired in that corruption. He came to cleanse us from all of it. Um, And that's always where we will find the power uh, to glorify God in, in regard to this sin or any other sin. Is to remember what it cost to redeem us and that he was willing to pay that cost. That he was willing to do what it took to die for our sins against the seventh commandment and our sins against every other commandment. That that was the extent of the reason he loved us. It was the extent of his love for us that he was willing to do those things. Because he was a faithful Lord, because he was a faithful brother because he was a faithful husband to his bride. This is the love of Christ as the husband of the church. This is the love he had for his bride, that he was willing to pay that price to make her clean. So that she can be there arrayed in white in Revelation. Um, A white she doesn't deserve to wear in her own merit but a white that she can wear because of what her husband has done for her as his bride. Um, This is a hard calling for us uh, to do the things that we're called to do. Um, This is a struggle for God's people. Um, And the last thing we have to be reminded of is that this struggle is temporary. We will not always war as we war now. Um, I always think of a Puritan who said, you know, you have to, you're at war the whole time. You're going to sleep in armor in this world. You can't ever take it off because you're at war all the time. Um, but there is a time coming when we'll lay down our arms. There won't be a fight for holiness forever. Uh, there, there is a day coming when the Lord will return in glory and all things will be made new. And then these struggles, like any other struggle, will be over. Um, and so we're to fight until that day. Against this sin, against any other sin, the calling of the Christian life is to stand your post till you're recalled. To fight the good fight until the Lord says it's over. Um, and to live in the hope that one day it will be over. And it won't just be an end to struggle, it'll be an end to struggle that ends in victory. But that's the hope of God's people. And so as we war this sin that besets us in this world in a particular way, um, we war against every sin, in this way, Uh, in the confidence that we hate it because God hates it, that we should fight against it all the days of our lives, and that as Christ has overcome it by his cross, one day we will overcome it in him when he comes again. Amen. Amen. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, would you help us to strive to glorify you with our bodies? We thank you that you have created us body and soul. We thank you for the promise that's ours in Christ, that if we put our faith and trust in him, we can have confidence that we are not our own, that he purchased us with his precious blood by his death on the cross. Might the cost that he had to bear to bear away our sins help us in our struggle against sin. Uh, May we contest sin all the days of our lives and struggle against it and fight against it under the banner of our king. Um, When we fail, might you remind us that we have a mediator, Jesus Christ, the righteous one, who is the propitiation for our sins. Um, And might that encourage us once again to pick up the fight and to struggle against sin with all our might, knowing that one day that Christ will return in glory and put an end to all of our enemies and his. Lord, help us until that day. May Christ come quickly and may find us to be faithful to his calling on that day. Hear us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.